0: I've never preached from Amos. I've never even had a Sunday school lesson from Amos. Uh, And so that means that if you've been coming to Three Rivers for the last seven or eight years, you haven't had a sermon from Amos. And you know what? If I hadn't decided years ago that for Advent, I would just kind of take a book of the Bible each week of Advent and draw something out of it that reminds us of Christ, that shows that the common thread through the Old Testament all the way to the end is this story of redemption, uh, we would have missed it. And, and granted, last year, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, yeah, those were tough. They made me second guess what we had done, set up all these years ago. Um, But the minor prophets are gonna be quite a bit of similarity between them. Uh, And if you're a history buff and you wanna know more, I would suggest you read uh, 2 Kings, uh, 1 and 2 Chronicles, and you get some of the history that's going on behind it. So we have these uh, minor prophets listed, and they're called minor prophets not because uh, they didn't quite pass their ordination exams uh, (laughs) or they were insignificant. It's just that their writings are smaller and, um, but, but interwoven with these, you have Elisha and Elijah, um, and they don't even get their own book, right? Uh, so if it interests you, and you can also look up secular history of the Assyrians. Uh, it, 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 I went down that rabbit hole just with one phrase in the text. Uh, I'll tell you about it a little later because uh, it's kind of a brutal phrase. But um, all, all, all of this pointing... Really, especially when we get the book end of Amos, the world's need of a savior. So, um, uh, Amos, we're gonna we're gonna spend most of our time on chapter nine, but but we got to get there somehow. And and so, uh, I, I'm not gonna have you stand yet. Uh, if you have your Bible open to Amos, and we're gonna kind of go through it pretty quickly to get up to chapter. Nine. Um, and I would say every book, when we, when we go through Advent, every book of the Bible either looks towards Christ coming uh, or back at Christ's resurrection or somehow both, Christ's coming and, and then Christ's second coming. And we find that in Amos, especially we find that in chapter 9, uh, Christ's coming, uh, the restoration of the nation of Israel, but then Christ's second coming. Um, and it is this God of the Bible that we see and we encounter. It is the God of the Bible uh, that keeps nations and peoples uh, in his hand. Now, as we look through Amos, uh, I want you to have really in your forefront of your mind the atrocities that we have experienced. If you've turned on the news and you have seen, uh, it is nothing new, though it still shocks us things that go on in Gaza, things that go on, as you hear reports from Ukraine, uh, things that go on in parts of Africa. A couple of weeks ago when I was in Virginia, I met a young man who was one of those child soldiers who has a child stolen from his family and given a gun and told to kill members of his own community. That stuff goes on today. That stuff was going on in Assyria. That stuff goes on in Israel in our hearing, but at this time, it's not going on in Israel yet. There is this season that Amos comes to the forefront, and it is a season of this prosperity. Uh, you read in Amos that people had summer homes, right? I mean, summer homes, right? That's, that's, that's got to be a sign, as it is today, of prosperity. Summer homes, and their kingdom was expanding, and there was relative peace amongst them. And it betrayed, really, what was going on underneath. Um, but I'm kind of getting ahead. This, this, the climate of Amos' uh, prophecies, it was an optimistic time. And so it was hard. You can imagine a, a prophet coming in and, and saying, uh, Devastation is coming. Turn. Turn back to the Lord. Now, again, that's the common cry of every prophet turn back to the Lord. Turn loose of the idols that you've made with your own hands. Turn away from those and turn back to the Lord. It's a hard message to give in a time of peace and security. But you know what? It's also a hard message to give in a time of warfare. We'll find the same people of God who at times of success really just treat Him as kind of... Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, he's, he's, he's great, you know, we, we, we love him, but we don't necessarily need him like we used to, that then turn on him in anger when things don't go their way. And he lists it in the book, like I did this and you didn't return, I did this and you didn't return. Um, but that's the climate. Um, it is pre-exile, and so the whole nation is taken away into Assyria. So uh, most people believe that Amos was written about 767 to 753 BC that's what his prophecy covers and it wasn't until 733 uh, about 20 years later that Tiglath-Pileser the third of Assyria took the people away Um, in 2nd Kings we read a bit about what goes on in that Uh, In 2nd Kings chapter 6 you read about cannibalistic mothers bad stuff is going to happen. And the prophet forewarns them. This is going to happen. You are living in a time of peace and security. Do not mistake that for a time of self-security. The people are going to be led. Here's what you find when you read 2 Kings and you read the other prophets. is the prophets would go in, and it happens in Amos too, the prophet would go in and he would prophesy, and, and, and people would blame the prophet. So you'll see this in all the Old Testament. All right, The king will tell, I mean, it's in Numbers, Balaam, Balak. Uh, the prophet will come, and the king will offer them money. The people will offer them money, and they will say, hey, why don't you agree with everybody else? This is the message we want to hear. Right? It happens all the time, and I always wondered why that happens. You know why that happens? Because the false prophets act that way. Why do the false prophets act that way? Because idol worship acts that way. If you give this, then God will be obligated. If you give a little money, you hear it even today, you're going to sow a seed of faith and you're going to get tenfold back, right? It was the same there, except it was so heightened that you read about these kings, uh, Manasseh. What does he do? He sacrifices his own son in order to secure victory so folks we, we talk about this it's important for a Christian person to worship the God of the Bible but it's also extremely important that, that a Christian worships the God of the Bible in the way he has set up that our relationship paradigm with God is not the same as a relationship paradigm with idols it is completely different and he says don't ever treat me that way You will not hold me under obligation. I obligate myself. Now, how contrasted is this between these kings who give their children the king of kings who gives his child? And yet the prophet spoke, it seemed, to deaf ears. The prophet warns, and the way I look at it, As the prophet warns like a good parent lovingly, warns a child of consequence. And then when the rules are broken, is obligated to follow through on that. Not because they are mean or because they are evil, but because there is purpose and reason. And if done properly, there is a hope and assurance, not just of reconciliation and restoration, but that it will even be better than it was before. And the reason I'm focusing on chapter 9 is because that's where he takes us. Uh, and I've only got one week in Amos. <laughs> so um, he leaves us there. And so I, I feel obligated as, as the preacher of God's word to leave you where Amos left the people. These people had been robbed of all dignity. They were to be led to another country. They were to live in miserable exile. They were to be scattered to the far reaches of the world. They were to be bought and sold like chattel, oppressed by many. But however for the faithful, there is always the greater eternal hope. So in your Bibles, I'm going to break this down into three quick points. Okay, they're not going to be quick. Three points. First, God lays out the transgressions of the nations. All right. So in the first four chapter, God is, and it's real, beautifully poetic, He will say, for three sins and for four. For three sins and for four. And he works his way through the geography of the ancient Near East. And he says, these are the things that are going on, right? And so he starts, verse 1, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters His voice from Jerusalem. The passions of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment." You read sometimes where the Lord tells a prophet, this is what I'm about to do. And then you hear about it, you see with Moses. You see about it with Amos. That the prophet says, oh no, Lord, what about your promise? What about your covenant? What about your people? And there are times that it's beautiful anthropomorphic. It's God acting like a human, talking back and forth. And so he is saying, I'm not going to withhold my punishment. I have patiently waited. I've sent prophet after prophet after prophet and waited patiently for my people to come back to me. He says, I'm not going to withhold it because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sieges of iron. This is the Assyrians. I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus, and I'll cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter in Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Now he continues in verses 6 and 8. He talks about Gaza. Gaza, he says, uh, is enslaving and selling people. In nine and 10, Tyre, that region is enslaving and selling people. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, to the south east of Israel, Edom. He says, "Edom pursued his own brother with the sword and was unmerciful." Verses 13 and 15, the Amorites ripped open pregnant women in order to enlarge their borders. Now I'm aware that we have children here. It is as horrible as it sounds. They engage in a form of psychological warfare against civilians and against what is maybe arguably the most beautiful human thing. A woman with a child. You know, we have to remember this when we read this because we, we, we sometimes, uh, I think often we forget the heritage of where we stand. I would not be the first to say that America is a Christian nation but we have been influenced in our law by the scriptures. And so we raise people and they have an inherent sense of the value of a human being and then we get amazed when we see it elsewhere where children are killed, where people are dragged, where people are tortured and no one feels remorse for it. And I forget that the Lord has impressed upon this nation. He has blessed for a season. The Amorites did horrible things. You ever read about uh, Genghis Khan and the the awful things that he would do? Our God says, I see this, not just in my people, but I see this in the world. In chapter 2, he talks about Moab in the same manner. And then uh, in chapter 2, verse 4 or 5, he talks about Judah. And Judah is the northern kingdom. And when the kingdoms were divided... Rehoboam and Jeroboam, when they divided the sons of Solomon, uh, the son of Solomon uh, responded to the people and the kings were divided. What we see in, uh, in the history as it unfolds is that Judah is normally more faithful. Judah has normally more godly kings in its reign, and as a result, it lasts about 150 years longer before exile. But even Judah in chapter 2, 4, and 5, he says there's three transgressions. And I will not revoke the punishment. What does he say? Because they've rejected the law of God. They've not kept my statues. Lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked. And then verse 6 to the end, Amos now takes up Israel. And so he starts with the nations around him and says, What, what you're seeing, Israel, happening in all of these nations, uh, it grieves the Creator God. It grieves Him. As a reminder to us, even if we suffer for a hundred years, God suffers greater. He feels it greater than we do. He is perfect in His being. The closest you can get is if you have a person you love so much, be it a child, a grandchild, a spouse, someone you see suffer and you feel it. And, and they don't even want to tell you they're suffering because they know how you feel it. Our God, our God patiently endures All the horrific things that are going on. But then he comes to his own people. And this is the worst. He comes to his own people and he says, You, oh Israel, you are just like them. You are just like them. In chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You only have I known. Of all the families of the earth, therefore... I will punish you for your iniquities. You're, you're, you were mine, Israel. As you saw, as your prophets foretold and reminded, you belong to me. But always in the midst of this, there's hope. All right? in, in verse 12 of chapter 3, Thus says the Lord, As a shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs and a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued the corner of a couch, and the part of a bed. And then comes this phrase, 4.12. Therefore, thus will I do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you. Prepare to meet your God, O Israel. Now, we're, we're going to close with the song, The Lion and the Lamb. And it is a beautiful picture oftentimes I think God created this. Well, I know God created all of his creation that he might be glorified in it. But these two like opposing animals, right? The lion and the lamb. He says to Israel in chapter 4, verse 12, uh, I've seen all of these things. You, O Israel, are doing the exact same things. Prepare to meet your God. Now, the very first Indiana Jones movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Everybody seen that? If, if if not, blame your parents. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Indiana Jones. He's an archaeologist, and and he gets told that hey, they think that Hitler has found the Ark of the Covenant. And he is in class, and he draws a picture of the Ark, and he finds a picture of it, and have all these power things coming out of it, and he's like, Hitler thinks if he has the Ark, he might be able to control God. Now, again, as I said at the beginning, uh, that's that's paganism, that's idolism, right? We can control God. We we keep him in this box. If we bring him into this place, uh, we can control him. We can make him do what we want him to do. And so he goes on this quest to find the Ark, right? The lost Ark of the Covenant. He goes on this quest. Now, there is a rival archaeologist named Belloc, right? Belloc is working alongside of the Germans, and, and of course, as they set up the characters, Belloc steals a statue, uh, and 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 then Indy's getting close to the ark, and Belloc is there. And, uh, but there's a scene where they're sitting across from each other, and Indy thinks that the, the girl has been killed, and so he's ready to kill this guy. And Belloc is talking back and forth, and um, he says, don't, "Don't you see what we're about to what we're about to we're about to see God?" And Indiana Jones says, "You want to meet God?" You want to meet God? How do you think it's going to work? Right? He doesn't say it, but how do you think that's going to work? Well, then later on in the movie, when they find the ark, he's chained up there on his pole. Right? What does he say to the girl? Close your eyes. Right? He had done his study. He says, "Close your eyes." And of course, Belloc has the, the, um, the ephod of a priest, and they open it up. What does he say? He looks in there, and he opens it up, and it's like sand. He puts his hand in it, and then the angel comes out, and he says, It's beautiful. right? My boys and I used to say that to each other all the time. It's beautiful, right? He says, it's beautiful. But then it turns into the angel of death, and all their faces melt, right? All their faces melt. And, and, and Harrison Ford is like, don't open your eyes, don't open your eyes, don't open your eyes. He had some sense, right? Now Spielberg and whoever else wrote that and directed it, who knows what they were thinking. But I couldn't help but thinking about that when I come to too. Prepare to meet your God. See, it's common in uh, American evangelicalism that the only picture we have of God is the Lamb. That's it. The only one we have is the lamb. And he's, like I said before, he's like this big fuzzy Barney that I love you, you love me. Come on, children. There is nothing harmful or anything to be afraid of. Oh, contraire. He is a lion. John the Baptist, he's a consuming fire. Prepare to meet your God. When God visits, and He will visit, when God comes again, and His return is inevitable, what will you see? Second part of this is that God lays out the requirements. Um, in verse five, ch- chapters five all the way through the middle of chapter nine, He He lays out the requirements. It's like this is what I am seeing. Prepare to meet your God because this is what I should see. And I'm going to go through it quickly. But in verse 2 of chapter 5, seek me and live, he says. Verse 24, let justice roll down like water. Let righteousness like an ever-flowing water. Stream, O people, the day of the Lord is inevitable, and it will bring God's justice and righteousness to the whole earth. And so he highlights really two major things. First, that the worship of God, it must produce morally upright behaviors. The worship of God must produce godliness in his people. Why does he say righteousness and justice should flow? Because God is full of justice and righteousness. And, oh, human beings, you know what we become like? We become absolutely like that thing which we worship. It transforms who we are, what we love, how we are, all all our habits, everything. It's transformed by that. And so he says, oh, Israel, justice should roll like water, righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Worship is to produce morally upright behavior. Make no mistake, your character, your values... And the deeds that you do betray the God that you serve. In chapter 5, he talks about, Oh, Israel, you're taking bribes, and you are abusing the poor and the powerless. Secondly, when God lays out his requirements, he makes a point of saying hypocrisy causes spiritual death. He hates hypocrisy. Hypocrisy causes spiritual death. Death. Verse 21 of 5, he says, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I won't accept them. The peace offerings of your fattened animals, I won't look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen. As one writer has put it, religion that is confined to the sanctuary is worse than no religion at all, for it is false Hypocrisy is worse than atheism, for it camouflages the sickness that grace is meant to heal. It is a denial of both the reality of sin and the power of grace, and more hopeless still is hypocrisy that has advanced to the stage where it is not even recognized by its adherents. Are we there? Be warned. We may be. In the midst of those warnings comes another call, return. Verse 15, hate evil, love good. Establish justice. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant. In Chapter, 10, um, chapter 8, verse 10, he says, I'm going to turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation it's like the opposite of psalm 30 where david says you've turned my mourning into dancing god says i'm going to turn all of your feasts and your religious festivals into lamentation you are to love what i love and to hate what i hate so the other day i was at mulligan's and um osu was playing uh brigham young i cannot now for the life remember who i was with but we were eating and 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 like the whole place, it seemed on the other side, all of them were cheering for Brigham Young. And I think I said to Tammy, I had no idea there were that many Mormons in Grove. <laughs> like, Why are there so many BYU fans in Grove? I, I just can't understand it. Like, I mean, they were going crazy, they were yelling. I'm like, huh. And then someone told me, uh, hey, idiot, uh, it's, it's not that. It's their OU fans. Oh, I get it, they're cheering for the people that are, they hope beat their rival, right? And I found that funny. I mean, it's been a funny thing for me. We've lived in all these different places that like there's the true fans cheer for their team, right? But the ones that are really sold out, they hate the other team. It's not just enough to cheer for your team. You have to hate everything about them on their colors, right? And every, I mean, I would not be worried that color, right? And it just seems, right, we've seen it, right? It, it may be us, okay? Maybe may be us. I know it's me, all right? But uh, God is telling Israel the same thing. Oh, you're to love what is good, but you're to hate what is evil. And it may be that part of the sweetness of our watered-down Christianity that we don't even ever want to talk about hate, but we're to hate what is evil. We're to despise all things that go against our God. In so doing, we promote the flourishing of humanity. All right, now we've come to the text for the sermon. <laughs> it's a new record. Yeah, it's going to be quick. Okay, we're, we're going to land the plane, Kuiper, but, but you have to set all of that up. right? You just have to set it up. That's who he was prophesying to. That's what they would face. And if the prophecy was difficult, how much more living through it and knowing when it happened. This is what the prophet said would happen. Why were we so blind? Why didn't we listen? And then you have these beautiful psalms of lament and this crying out to the Lord, right? But even the prophet is given. Amos, that's not the end. When Israel is carried away, when the Assyrians come and commit atrocities against my people, and they are carried away, Amos... That is not the end. We're going to read uh, chapter nine, verses eleven through fifteen. Please stand for the reading of God's word. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, and repair its breaches, and I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the nations who are called by my name. Declares the Lord who does this. Oh, praise the sovereign God! Behold, the days are coming declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed, the mountains shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make their gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. This also is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Uh, Many theologians think that he is talking about uh, a near and a far prophecy. You see this in Matthew where he talks about the day of the destruction of Jerusalem, and then he says, but about that day, and here you have on that day, and then you have a portion that says in those days. And, and so um, regardless, Amos didn't see any of this. Right? I have to remind myself, Amos didn't see any of this in his lifetime. He, he prophesied that, that yes, there would be a return. Right? We read about it when Cyrus, we read about it in uh, Ezra, Cyrus, king of Persia, moved by the Lord, sends back the remnant post-exile, right? That seems to make sense because what he's talking about here is this booth of David, uh, not the throne of David, but, but the, and, and, and Israel returns, and they are, they are less prominent throughout the rest of earth's history as they were. But it is beautiful that our God says, this is not the end. And so when I titled the sermon, A Hopeful Visitation, this is the day of the Lord that his people look to. But make no mistake, he is one and the same God who will come as a lion to destroy all evil and all causes of evil and will come as a lamb to his people and by his own blood shed will receive them into this kingdom. That's the beauty of our gospel. And it's much more beautiful when you realize what our sins deserve. The people that we have become, the people that we are tempted to idolize and and even worship at times. And yet what our God, accomplish on our behalf I want to point out just a couple of things in verses 11 to 15 in verse 11 he says that I'm going to raise up the booth Um, it's not Solomon's temple but but he will repair it and he will bring them back and he does it and so in prophecy there was a near and a far prophecy all the time when the near prophecy came true people could say oh he said this would happen therefore we can believe in the future Right And again, for us as Christians, the virgin would be with child. Uh, he will call his name Emmanuel. Right? God's short-term prophecy, he will come, uh, gives us hope and, and really logical reason to believe in the long-term prophecy second in verse 12 the kingdom then will be expanded they'll possess this remnant from edom okay so even in the old testament there is always this israel was made for the world not the world made for israel israel was made to be a kingdom of priests that would draw the world to the one and true god and yet that will happen edom which was the one that was really responsible for most I mean, it is almost like what we see with, with Gaza and Israel now. They're just, they're, they're just always at them. He said, no, Edom itself will be included. The kingdom would be greater than ever before. And I think verse 13 picks up really this picture of, of our final new heaven and new earth. Uh, because it's hyperbolic, right? Verse 13, this new earth, this new kingdom... Uh, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper, the treader of grapes who sows, and the mountains shall drip wine, and the hills will flow with it. He is saying, uh, all that you want and all that you need for the flourishing of life will be yours. All that you have striven for your life will be yours. And it's beautiful imagery, isn't it? It's like the plowman is overtaking the reaper. It's like, hey, this stuff just keeps producing. The ground doesn't even have to lie fallow. It keeps producing right the mountains will produce uh, is a beautiful picture fourthly he says in verse 14 and all the captives will be returned from captivity I'll restore the fortunes they'll rebuild the cities they shall plant their vineyards and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit We, we have seen again just a brief bit of that haven't we in the most recent events what are we willing to give up to receive our captives? Right? And I mean, all this political turmoil and arguing and all, you know, we, we give these up, will they give us that? And you know, the value of a human being? Right? Our God says, this is that, that, that longing that we have. He goes, that's the longing I have for you, Israel. The longing I have for you, my people. You've been taken captive by vain philosophies and idol worship i'm going to draw you back to myself you will be released from everything that enslaves you and brought back to me and fifth verse 15 they will be permanently planted in their land john the baptist came and preached a gospel of repentance and the pharisees came up to him and they wanted to be baptized by him and And he said, we read about it in John's Gospel, chapter 3, he says, bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. What are you and I to make of this today? Well, I think we ask ourselves a few questions. Number one, where has the religion of the day or the culture crept in on my life? Take some time with your Lord in private and ask yourself, where has the religion of the day, the hopes of the culture, where have they crept in? We see this... This cycle, it's syncretism to outright idolatry. It's it's accepting and receiving God in idols. Uh, Where does that happen? Secondly, Christian, you look at your worship. Is it devoid of truthful, heartfelt devotion to and love for God? When you enter His presence on your own in the morning or the evening corporate body together on the Lord's day is it, is it to run through a number of things I sure hope not or is it to grow in your love for the Savior When we have our times of confession and assurance it is to do exactly what the prophet calls the people to do consider your life consider the things that you love Thirdly, is your life marked by righteousness and justice? Yeah, it sounds legalistic, doesn't it? But he he is saying that, oh, oh, Christian, look at what you produce. Look what comes out of your existence and your day to day. What is it producing? Is it producing justice and righteousness? We're not saved by those works, but we're saved to those works. The one we love does that. And so if your life isn't marked by that, then you, 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 it, it's time for it's really a, a relooking at your, the object of your faith. God, why is my life not, why, why do I care about justice? And the things I do right, are they just not illegal? Let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Uh, I'm going to close with a prayer that John Calvin prayed on his 68th lecture on the Minor Prophets. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads. Grant, Almighty God, that as we see everywhere so many evidence and tokens of your displeasure, and even more grievous ones are impending, that we would indeed consider how grievously we have provoked your wrath and how wickedly also the whole world at this day rages against you and at the same time abuse your many and excellent benefits. O grant that we may ever remember your covenant and entertain a perpetual confidence in your only begotten Son, that whenever it may please you to sift us, you would keep us in safety until we arrive not into the earthly storehouse, but into your celestial kingdom, where we may become partakers of that glory which your Son has obtained for us, who has once for all redeemed us, that we may ever remain under His guardianship and His protection. Amen.